turn now to our scripture lesson for this morning's sermon as we continue our examination of 1 Corinthians. We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. We'll be reading this morning. Again, this is God's holy word as he inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Corinth. So we have here for us the infallible inspire the therefore inerrant word of the living God. So let's attend with reverence to its reading. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock, Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so... The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. And may he bless its reading and its exposition and its hearing for us today. <clears throat> Perhaps I should preface this sermon by saying it's purely God's providence that this comes right before we're going to have our annual congregational meeting and be adopting a, a budget <clears throat> and uh, should also say that Kim and I feel quite well provided for by this congregation. So this is not in any way any kind of polemic or anything against this this congregation. But perhaps some hearing this, maybe some who will hear this on on sermon audio someday, will benefit from the fact that we need to be reminded that we are not to muzzle the ox while he treads out the grain. So we're going to consider this morning a couple of rights that preachers of the gospel have, according to the Apostle Paul. You'll recall that in chapter 8, the Apostle was concerned with the the matter of liberty of conscience. Uh, One of the things that he was saying, uh, to put it in a few words, was just because you're free to do something does not mean that it is always wise or best to do that thing. He taught that a Christian should think lovingly of how his actions 
uh, which he is perfectly free to do, might affect other believers. In chapter 9, then, Paul actually is giving examples of things that he is free to do. Indeed, he speaks of things which are his right to have, but he's willing to forego these things because of what is best for others. So he's going to offer that to us as an example, and particularly we'll come to, to that end of things more next week, Lord willing. But along the way, he teaches several things, and we see several today. We can gather from Paul's words in today's passage something of the situation that was going on in Corinth that he was addressing. Apparently, some have criticized Paul, uh, maybe strangely to our way of thinking. They've, they've criticized him uh, because he has not taken any payment from the Corinthian church for preaching for them. Uh, maybe they're saying, well, the other apostles take payments, so if Paul were a real apostle, wouldn't he do that too? I think they're probably just looking for any excuse to undermine Paul's authority. It could well be that his critics are false teachers also, who, as he says in 1 Timothy 6.5, Uh, see godliness as a means of gain. And so they have to undermine Paul because he's not out for that gain. They try to legitimize their own desire for money by delegitimizing Paul's apostleship because he never took any money from the Corinthian church. Paul teaches that he has the right to do that, though. He says he has the right to financial support from those to whom he preaches, but he has chosen of his own free will to forego that right lest it would get in the way of his preaching the gospel in new places. In fact, I'll mention next week, and I'll just briefly mention now this, has something to do with our particular policy as a denomination. You'll find that when we do church planting, that we don't expect the, the new congregation that's forming to be able to support their pastor right away. And so we help with that until, as that congregation gets its feet under it, uh, so to speak, uh, then they take over the providing the payment, the salary for their pastor. And today's passage is the first part of Paul's answer to this criticism. And here he teaches us a, a couple of things about the rights that preachers of the gospel have. Number one, they have a right to be married. Uh, we won't spend a lot of time on that one this morning because Paul doesn't spend a lot of time on it. But they certainly do have the right to be married. And then number two, they have a right to be paid for their labor in the gospel. We see in the first two verses the situation. Uh, someone has apparently challenged Paul's apostleship. In verse 1, he asks four rhetorical questions. Uh, the grammar actually tells us to presume that the answers to these questions is yes. And the first of those questions he asks is, am I not an apostle? And of course, the answer is yes. Now, some people have, have apparently tried to undermine that and say, well, Paul isn't really a, an apostle. But he says, yes, I am. Whatever anyone else might claim, Paul is truly an apostle of Jesus Christ. He has been sent by Christ. That's what the word apostle means. Someone who sent, and particularly a messenger sent with the authority of the one sending. So he's been sent by Christ with Christ's authority to carry out the gospel ministry, to take the gospel to all the nations, to establish churches, and so on. In Acts 9.15, Jesus tells Ananias, whom he's sending to Paul, says of Paul, he is 
a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. In Acts 26, 17 through 18, Paul recounts that Jesus said to him, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you. So he's sending him, that makes him an apostle, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul asks, am I not an apostle? Yes. The question, or the answer is yes. Christ clearly chose him and sent him with his authority to do these things. Paul asks, am I not free? He's as free as any other believer. He has the same Christian liberty and the same liberty of conscience that all other believers possess. He's free from the consequences of sin. That's Christian liberty from the Old Testament ceremonial law. He's free to do anything God has not forbidden. That's liberty of conscience. But he won't use this liberty, won't use this freedom in any way that might harm his brethren or undermine the gospel. As he said in chapter 8, verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. He asks here then, have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Paul had been met on the road to Damascus by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And as we just were studying in Acts this last Wednesday evening, and comparing what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, we see that Paul actually went into the Arabian wilderness for three years and met Christ and was trained by him. He had a three-year training, much like the other apostles. Christ has appeared to him other times since then, training him for his apostleship, guiding him thereafter. So, of course, Paul has seen Christ. Are you not my work in the Lord, he asks. The tangible proof that Christ was working through Paul were the believers who believed when he preached the gospel, like those at Corinth. And again, we read in Acts that when Paul was about to go to Corinth, uh, Jesus told him to go and said, For I have many people there. He had already elected chosen people from that city, and he was sending Paul there to preach the gospel so that they would believe. Whether others accept his apostleship, they certainly should. As he says in verse 2, If, if I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. They were the seal, the, the mark of authenticity that he literally was sent by Jesus because he went there and he preached and they believed. Again, we see from the context that some had sought to cast doubt on Paul's apostolic authority by claiming that he doesn't actually behave like other apostles. The other apostles were married. They took their wives with them on their missionary journeys. They accepted remuneration for preaching the gospel. Paul remained single, and he usually did not accept financial support from those to whom he preached. Now we find in his epistles that after he had established a church in a place and had moved on, uh, that oftentimes congregations, or at least sometimes congregations, might have donated to his ongoing missionary work. 
2 Corinthians 12.9 indicates that some from Macedonia did this. Philippians 4.15 specifically tells us it was the church at Philippi. And they sent gifts to Paul when he was in prison in Rome and having to support himself. Uh, he was under house arrest and he didn't have a means of self-support. And so they were uh, sending him funds. But ordinarily, Paul worked as a tent maker, uh, which really means a worker in canvas. Uh, he wouldn't have just made tents, uh, but he would have done repairs on canvas objects, on uh, items like light tents, or uh, think of uh, maybe the, the stalls of uh, people, laborers or merchants in the marketplace, uh, and even canvas shoes. This was a common thing that tent makers did in Paul's day was they repaired canvas shoes. He used income from such work to support himself while he preached the gospel in city after city. Contrary to his detractors' accusations, Paul had every right to make that choice. But he also had the right to be supported by those whom he taught. So before talking about his freedom to refrain from financial support, he speaks of the rights of preachers of the gospel, particularly two rights of preachers in this passage. One is the right to be married. We'll handle this one quickly, and and we'll do it first because Paul spends much more time on the other right that he talks about in this passage, but preachers of the gospel have a right to be married. Verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Paul and others who labored in singleness, probably Barnabas from the context we gather He's indicating him and Timothy, for a long time at least, had the right, they had the right to be married, even though they were single. Paul says the other apostles were married. He mentions specifically Cephas, that is Peter. He names him last, not to separate him from the others, from the apostles and the brothers of the Lord, but for emphasis, and probably specifically for emphasis in Corinth, because remember, Lots of people, as we saw at the beginning of this letter, lots of people in the Corinthian church took Peter so seriously that they were willing to divide from others who were not, as they said, of Cephas. They were not of Peter. We know clearly from Mark 1, verse 30, that Peter had a wife. Paul also mentions the brothers of the Lord here. We know that at least... Three of Jesus' brothers became leaders in the early church. James, Simeon, and Jude. The letters of James and Jude in the New Testament were written by Jesus' brothers. These men had wives. Notice a couple of things about the women in question, though. For one thing, they were believers themselves. Paul says he has the right to take a believing wife. Not just any wife, but a believing wife. No Christian has the right to marry outside the faith, and particularly those who are to be setting the example for others ought not to do that. If a preacher of the gospel does marry, he has to marry a Christian woman. Literally, Paul asks, Have we not the authority, a sister, a wife, to lead about? So that's where the translations that we have get things like a believing wife from. Because a Christian man's wife should be his sister in the Lord. This is a clear prerequisite for the wife of a preacher, whether a pastor or a missionary. For another thing, these believing women 
accompanied their husbands. Paul says he has the same right to bring a believing wife, a a wife who is a sister in the Lord, along with him as the other apostles and Jesus' brothers do. So preachers of the gospel have a right to be married to a believing wife. They don't have a right to marry someone else, but they have the right to marry a believing woman. Secondly, preachers of the gospel have a right to be paid, Paul says. Verse 14 is Paul's conclusion to his argument in this passage. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Notice a couple of things there. A, the Lord commands this. This isn't an option. Yes, the preacher, as we'll see more specifically next week, may choose to forego the payment under certain circumstances, as Paul did. But the church does not have the option of withholding payment from a man who is laboring at preaching the gospel to them and teaching them the counsel of God's word. If you spend your life preaching the gospel, then you should be making your living by preaching the gospel. Look at verses 3 and 4. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? The one preaching the gospel is spending his time working at preparing to preach the gospel, not working at something else to feed himself. So he should be able to eat and drink to sustain his earthly life by his labors in the gospel. Now, look at verse 6. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? So the one who preaches the gospel has the right to refrain from other work. Not to be lazy, but to have time to labor more at preaching and teaching. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. And that word labor there has two aspects to it. It refers to how a man makes his living. Some elders make their living, so we see all elders have ruling authority in the church, but some of them make their living by teaching, by preaching and teaching in the church. And then it also refers to hard work, to toil. A faithful preacher of the gospel, and we'll get more next week into what faithful preachers do, but a faithful preacher of the gospel toils. He works hard at it. He can't be lazy about it. He has a responsibility to do that. Certainly a man who works hard at preaching and at teaching the church has the right to be paid for it, Paul says. He has the right to be remunerated for his hard work. Indeed, if he has to labor at something else, well, his labor in the Word is necessarily going to be suffering because he's, he's not going to have the time to do what is really necessary. It's going to be less rigorous. Indeed, Sometimes that becomes necessary, and men voluntarily, as we'll see next week, uh, give up some of their remuneration, or all of it, and work at something else while they're preaching the gospel. And typically in the church, we call them tent makers, because of the simple fact that Paul did this very thing, working literally as a tent maker, in order to support his ministry. Well, as Paul says in in 1 Timothy 5.18, the laborer deserves his wages. B, a second thing we see here is verse 14, 
It begins with the words, even so. That indicates that this is the logical conclusion of some apt comparison. In fact, Paul has offered at least seven comparisons, any one of which would be sufficient to prove his point. First is the comparison with warfare in verse 7. Whoever goes to war at his own expense. Just as a soldier does not pay his own way to go to war, but is supplied by those for whom he is fighting, the preacher of the gospel is to be supplied by those to whom and for whom he preaches the gospel. Second is the comparison to planting a vineyard. Also in verse 7, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit. Just as a man should be able to eat the grapes from a vine that he has planted, the preacher of the gospel has the right to eat from the results of his labor, Paul says. Third is the comparison to shepherding. That's a common comparison or common metaphor used. Indeed, even the word pastor itself is another word for a shepherd. At the end of verse 7, he says, Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? So just as a shepherd has the right to drink the milk from the flock that he's tending, so the preacher has the right to receive from those to whom he preaches. To receive sustenance. Fourth, the comparison to an ox treading out the grain. Verse 8, Paul writes, Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same thing also? In other words, God's word clearly teaches this already. Even if I weren't speaking as an apostle, with Christ's authority, you should know that the Bible that you already have, what we would call the Old Testament, already tells you this. Then in verse 9, he cites Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And he then asks, Is God concerned about oxen? Is it oxen God is concerned about? In other words, if God would be that concerned for the ox, which obviously the law does apply to how men treat their oxen, right? But if God would be that concerned for the treatment and compensation of an animal, of an ox, how much more must he care that you would fairly compensate a human being who's doing something for you? As the ox must be allowed to eat from the grain that he's helping to harvest or to grind, so the preacher should be able to eat from his labors. In verse 10, or does he say it altogether for our sake? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. He uses that as a segue then to a fifth comparison, which is the comparison to agriculture more in general. The latter part of verse 10, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. Just as the man who plows and the man who threshes has an eager and reasonable expectation of eating from the food that he's planting or that he's harvesting, so should the preacher have a reasonable expectation to eat as a result of his preaching. The sower has the right to eat from what he has sown. Also, verse 11, if we 
have sown spiritual things for you? Is it a great thing if we reap your material things? No, I might stop there and say Paul is not teaching this modern doctrine of sowing in your seed money and getting some kind of, of financial return from that. If a preacher promises you that, he's preaching a false gospel to you. Paul's simply saying, if somebody has done labor for you, he deserves the wages from you. Sixth is a comparison to other teachers. Verse 12, if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Apparently, the Corinthian Christians have paid others to teach them. So Paul is saying, I have the same right, even if I haven't taken advantage of that right, even if I haven't demanded that you do this. The fact that I haven't demanded it, as we'll get into the later part of this chapter, he'll say the fact that I haven't demanded this doesn't mean that I'm less a teacher than those people. But I do have that same right, he's saying here. Last is the comparison to priests in the temple. Verse 13, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? If the priests under the Old Covenant had the right to eat from things offered in the temple, like the showbread that was on the altar of the showbread, and the meat from the altar, surely the preacher of the gospel has a right to eat as a result of his labors in the gospel. Preachers of the gospel have a right to be married. That's the first thing. So they have two rights that Paul mentions here. One is the right to be married. As I mentioned recently, a great deal of evil has been done by unbiblical requirements in regard to marriage. Celibacy of clergy is usually the problem. A minister does not have to be married, but he has a right to be, if he so desires, and if the Lord provides him a believing wife. And as I said before, if your church's requirements for office would disqualify Jesus or one of his apostles, you probably have an unbiblical requirement there. If we were to say that our clergy had to remain unmarried, celibate, well, then Peter couldn't be an elder in our church. He couldn't be our pastor. And if we had the reverse requirement, which some in a sort of knee-jerk fashion uh, required the reverse, that their ministers had to be married, well, then now Paul can't be your pastor. And that would be a problem. Preachers of the gospel do have a right to be married. And preachers of the gospel have a right to be paid for their labors in the gospel. If a man is to have the time to devote appropriately and give an an adequate amount of energy to the work and the doctrine to labor, to toil at that, uh, that work. He needs to be compensated so that he doesn't need to spend his time making a living some other way. I'm not saying this again because our congregational meeting is coming up on Wednesday. This is merely a God's uh, providence. But next week, we'll see that a man may choose to labor uh, where he gets less than he would get elsewhere, or uh, just because of his love of the word and his love of God's people, or he might choose not to take any payment whatsoever. It's 
not about the amount, but it's simply about uh, paying what we owe, paying for things that are given to us, giving a fair wage. Do not muzzle an ox as he treads out the grain. Pay the laborer his wages, the wages that he deserves. The Lord gives to preachers of the gospel this right, or these rights, and so let's not deny it to them. Well, let's pray. Lord our God, we do thank you for those who labor in the word and doctrine. We pray that pastors everywhere would be well supported in their rights to have a believing wife and to be duly compensated for their labors. We thank you that many have voluntarily, as we'll see next week, given up compensation that they could have gotten for the good of the church. But we also thank you that you have provided well for the church in most cases so that pastors can be well provided for it and that they might, as they preach the gospel, live by it. Help us all to be willing to pay the laborer his wage no matter what service is being provided for us that we might ourselves be righteous in our actions in regard to these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.